0: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera, Box School. Let's
1: get ready to rumble!
2: Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. From a closet in Rogers Park on the far north side of Chicago... I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight, Oliver and Matt go head-to-head in an early opera TKO. Who will win out in the Battle of the Orfeos? We're sure Monteverdi has an opinion, but we couldn't get him on the show, so Ashley will have to be the judge of that. Then, in the two-minute drill, don't believe everything you hear about COVID transmission at the opera, and a friend of the show makes her film debut. All that and more plus our hot takes. And without any further ado, how are you doing, Oliver?
3: Well, I'm so happy that Ashley is back. I feel like she just dropped off the face of the earth. Well she's but she's here. She's dropped back and that's dropped back on the that's face our, of the earth. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's our good call. I'm hat tipping the good oh, call.
4: Oh hi, yes, I'm on the face of the earth. I'm here. I've missed you guys. It's been a wild couple of weeks, but um I'm I'm delighted to be here and on such an ortheotastic <laughs> evening.
2: <laughs> or uh and um, of course we also have uh, always a pleasure, always a delight, always a pure joy to see on the show. Oh my Matt gosh! Matt Cummings, stop it! Uh, Hi, look. I
5: I definitely agree with uh, Oliver that it's great to have Ashley back. It's been oh, too long.
4: I know, Thanks, guys. It's been too long.
2: It's been too long. In fact, it's been so long. This intro has been so long. <laughs> I'm going to go yeah. ahead. Well, and this is,
3: by the way, to our audience, just to, so that it be preserved in eternity, this was the day that Zoom crashed for the world. It's like, it felt like the, the apocalypse of Zoom. So if this uh, recording isn't altogether successful, you might hear us switch over to a different platform.
4: <laughs> there were, um, were 8,000 outage reports in, by 8 a.m. this morning central time. Uh, the whole like eastern half of the United States many of organizations of which rely on Zoom yeah we just we didn't have access for about two hours and you know for a lot of places it was the first day of school like my organization and uh yeah yeah it was not a stressful way to start a Monday at all.
2: But now we're going to end the Monday with a nice little friendly game of TKO.
1: TKO on the OBS. So
3: it's the end of the summer, and there isn't so much news happening uh, in the opera world, except for people trying to pretend COVID doesn't exist. So we thought we'd take this late summer episode to enjoy a little technical knockout. We can go
2: back it's to like, a time when uh, when there every there were plagues everywhere, and everyone believed they existed.
3: Better times. Uh, this. Time around, we're going to have Monteverdi's Orfeo. And really, there's only one role <laughs> in this opera. There are a number of roles, but the, the one role that gets to sing a lot throughout the show is the title character. So Ashley has agreed to be our judge for three rounds of Orfeo. But first, I'll pass it off to Matt to set up what this competition means. So
5: Orfeo was first performed all the way back in 1607. It is not; It was not the first opera ever that usually gets... Uh, credited to some of the works of Jacopo Perry, but it is the first, it is the earliest opera that has really made it into the into the repertoire and that is done regularly. Its first performance was not in front of a paying public or or a ticket o- ticketed audience or anything like that, but it was at the court of Mantua for a group of nobles and scholars, really for the elites at the time, who were trying to come up with this new, way of doing theater Uh, they had there were there were a lot there was a lot of scholarship at the time looking into ancient greek theater and postulating that the choruses were probably actually sung and so they wanted to come up with this new art form that captured what the experience would have been like of going to one of those classical dramas and by combining the, the the classical theatrical forms with the music that was popular at the time they came up with this new form of opera
2: that was so you're saying you're saying that opera was born out of early period performance practices
5: (laughs) in a way it was more like um (laughs) speculative fiction about early performance practices like what would it have been like to be in athens and see these see these stories being told effectively with music and how can we possibly achieve that today so, so more of a period
2: performance fan fiction. Yeah,
5: that, that, yeah. exactly. And so it grew out of these uh, interme- intermedios, which was kind of the, this dance dance and music-centric entertainment that would occur in between the different acts of plays. And so they expanded that and combined it with the spoken theater to create opera for the elites.
3: And And I just, I have to go back and and underscore things that you already said better than I can say them, but no paying audiences and an audience full of basically nerds, (laughs) nerds and noblemen, you know, other composers, poets and artists and whatnot, uh, they were really trying to entertain each other. And so it is really a high uh, level of poetic language and the most experimental music of its time and type of stuff that... I don't like right now. I can't go to those, you know, new music concerts. Uh, I, I just It's too difficult for me to understand the language and to begin to, you know, be sympathetic with what's happening to the narrative because I'm so lost by the, the musical atmosphere, you know? Basically, this was so, an
2: audience of Weston's and Matt's, I think.
5: <laughs> I mean, we, I've got, at least got the nerd part of that, uh, part of that corner. <laughs> <laughs> Nerds!
3: Okay, go on. I'm sorry, Matt.
5: Uh, so M- Monteverdi uh, when, was already an es- establishing himself as a composer. He worked as a church musician. He was a musical prodigy. He was the, he was the core composer at this court in Mantua. Um, this was before he moved to Venice and really made a big name for himself. And, and it's earlier than his, the other compositions of his that you might know, like the Vespers or the, uh, the Coronation of Poppea. Those both were the Vespers was right around this time. Uh, just a couple years later he composed that and then Popea was 35 years later uh and there's a really big difference in the style of of the music this one is much more serious there's a lot more like Oliver was saying there's a lot more just kind of appeals to the really high end of what opera can be it doesn't have the same kind of uh body jokes in it that that Popea has at parts
3: and there really is not so much drama in it either it's just a bunch of you know, posturing and trying to explore the possibility of music to express emotions. There's obviously plot, but it's not, I mean, it's really kind of hard to follow the plot because things happen so slowly.
5: (laughs) They They would even say at the time that they were free to have this exploration because the earlier operas were usually done at weddings. And since they were done at weddings, they had to have happy endings. So this was kind of novel in that they didn't really have to change the ending of the Orpheus myth. Uh, which is very violent. They didn't go full on and have him like dismembered, but they do allude to the fact that everything might not be rosy in it. And that, that for 1607, was pretty novel.
2: Plus, it's hard to dismember someone on stage. There there are certain uh, 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 union regulations against that.
4: More than once, it's hard to dismember someone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. So let's uh, go ahead and why don't we dive into it? Why don't we do a, a, a round one um so, you guys are setting up two singers to pit against each other. Um, Oliver? Yeah, I, um, I think we could talk about the singers
3: we chose um, after this first round. But I do want to set up the entrance of Orfeo, which is his, I guess we'll call it Aria, even though Arias didn't really exist at the time. Uh, this is Rosa del Ciel. And um, it is during the wedding of Orpheus and Eurydice. And everybody's having a great time, and there's choruses and dancing. And one of the faithful shepherds says, hey, Orfeo, why don't you sing us a song? And so he says this, and I'm going to read the English because I don't want to waste our time trying to reinterpret the Italian, but uh, it's such a beautiful text, and hopefully I could do it justice. Rose of heaven, life of the world and worthy heir of he who the universe rules, son, who everything you encompass and contemplate is your constellation spinning. Tell me, have you ever been happier and more fortunate than me? Blissful was the day, my love, when I first saw you, and happier yet the hour when I yearned for you. Because to my yearnings you added yours, heavenly the instant when you offered me the white hand, token of pure faith. Had I as many hearts as eyes the eternal heavens has, and as many leaves as these peaks in green may all full and overflowing would they be with the pleasure that they that today delights me. Um, let's be, I'll do my first clip here. Uh, so this is my singer. So for those of you who are not used to listening to opera from this era, uh, it is very austere and purposefully so. I mean, really the only thing that you're getting is voice and continuo because they had no idea that people would want to have a whole orchestra. The idea never occurred to them that they would want an orchestra supporting the singer. You only want harmony and bass supporting the singer so that the singer has the freedom to really, you know, get the words across and for you to hear the singer's, you know, phrasing and articulation and tone. That was of utmost importance and obviously attention to words. Um, I think I'll reveal, well, I'll tell you, this is Anthony Rolf Johnson from the 1985 recording, very early for the revival of Monteverdi. That's very
5: stylish Um, from 1985. (laughs)
3: I know, uh, with John Elliott Gardner and the English Baroque soloist. So credit to John Elliott Gardner for being one of the pioneers of how to, you know, reconstruct seven, early 17th century opera. Um, and I just have to say that I know who Matt picked. And it's it's funny that we sort of both picked singers in the same category and the same sort of style of singer. Anthony Rolf Johnson is a Mozart singer, a Briton singer and a leader singer. And he also, you know, was excellent in Handel oratorios and uh, English language oratorio. You don't think of Anthony Wolf Johnson as singing anything past Mozart, really, except for Britain. Uh, You don't think of him singing bel canto or, you know, French romantic music or whatnot. His voice is just the right weight. And the tone is so pretty. And uh, it does feel like the type of singer who you could just imagine being youthful and, you know, curly hair with a little, uh, laurels, you know, a laurel crown and a toga, you know, I mean, he looks completely different than what he sounds like, but you know he just sounds so youthful you, and fresh. You can hear and... the little fawns prancing around.
5: <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, Matt, anything you want to say before we hear your clip?
5: That was, that was beautiful. Uh, it was it, in, the way that it was really sweet and honeyed all the way through without taking away from the text or the texture at all. It, w- it was a really even and beautiful singing in music that isn't necessarily written to help you do that in the same way that we think of Mozart helping you do that or Bacanto helping you do that. But if you really keep the focus alive and, and live, within that, uh, live within the moments of the text, you, you can create those moments too.
3: Yeah, I, I'm so glad you said that. Before you hear yours, what I like so much about this, and maybe it's more credit to John L.A. Gardner than it is to Anthony Rolf Johnson, is just how easily it moved from tempo to tempo. Like it didn't feel stuck in one giant tactus, you know? It really felt like it moved with the language. And um, there's so much to, you know, point up in tone coloring or in word painting in this aria, but it's actually just one of those pieces that is, you have to word paint. There's just so much there. So um, it would take us too long to really analyze everything that he was doing there. But the overall effect didn't feel affected. It didn't feel like tedious. It felt like one thought, even though there are so many thoughts happening. And there are recordings that I actually am very fond of. There's the uh, Venexiana recording that came out maybe like 10 years ago, um, which is so much about rhetoric and so detailed and labors over every moment. And it's great that there are people out there that are really trying to, you know, explicitly say, this is a moment here. This is the moment here. This is a moment here. But if you do that, you know, even over the course of two minutes, it can get exhausting. So I do appreciate the, just the lightness and the general motion of that interpretation. All right. I'm done talking. I'm going to play. We're going to play your clip now. Let's go.
0: Sol, che le tutto circondi le tutto miri, dagli stellanti giri. Sospirar, tu sospirasti. Felicissimo il punto che la candida mano penia di cura fede. A me
5: So Ashley, are you interested in guessing who my singer is before I do the big reveal?
4: I am not gonna get it right. Um, and I actually I you guys listeners, you can't see this or hear this. Um, but I am in the chat of our Zoom, like giving play-by-play commentary. Uh, and I just wrote in all caps, oh, this is different. So I'm I'm excited. I want to know who this is.
5: So this is John Mark Ainsley, who <gasps> similarly is a an English tenor really associated with Handel, Mozart, and and Britain and other oratorial composers, you you really wouldn't ever expect to hear him singing Rossini, although he, I bet he could, if he really put his mind to it. What I love about this recording is just how he has a very transparent tone, but it isn't devoid of color at all, and that color can change on a dime. Through the flexibility that he uses in his vibrato, he's really able to use it like an ornament. Uh, to draw attention to a a word or to add sense to a phrase Uh, and like Oliver was talking about there's one phrase that in this aria that gets a little bit longer and a little bit more complex in its grammar and the way that he uses momentum to drive that forward and propel the poetry to the end of the line makes it effective in, in a way that brings me with it so securely text painting again is is huge you you can really hear it here in the way he adds breathiness into the word "sospirai" and and other other words that mean they all mean sigh uh and the it's a really economical approach to singing but i find it to be a very effective and straightforward i don't
3: want to influence your decision ashley but it feels sort of like a draw to me um i think that they both had relatively similar approaches uh, I think that Anthony Ralph Johnson's voice just has more warmth to it and more, um, you know, of a halo. Whereas John Mark Ainsley, who I adore, by the way, has a little bit more core to his sound. A little, just a little more cut, a little edge, you know. And neither of them are particularly edgy singers, but if I had to draw a distinction, that that would be it for me. Ooh, they're Plus, fighting. Oliver's <laughs> well, got his a, claws gentle, out. <laughs> It's a gentleman's <laughs> duel this time around.
4: About to say my head um, and then I was like, "No, no, we've got to get to the era." So it's like white glove thrown on ground. <laughs>
3: yes. <laughs> okay, so Matt, do you want to go ahead and talk about the next round here? So
5: the next round jumps to Act Three, and Act, th- and this is really the sh- the only showpiece in the opera. If you can, if you can call it a showpiece, uh, it's really the only. It's the part where a soloist gets to take center stage, and it's the closest thing that we have to a real aria, uh, and that is Spirto, and or as I always read it in my head the first time, Pofente Spirto, because in those old, uh, it, in the old manuscripts, it was written with the long S that looks like an <laughs> F, and I, I I just can't get that out of my head. It, this is so this is the long monologue that Orpheus sings on the banks of the River Styx. He's gone down into the underworld because his his love, Eurydice, has been killed on their wedding day. And he is trying to persuade the, the the boatman who leads the dead souls across the river Styx, whose name is Karen, to take him across the river. And it doesn't work, but not for lack of trying. He pulls out all the stops. He, he just goes verse after verse about all of the forces of nature and, the, and the, how deep his grief is felt and how he's wandered all over looking for, trying to follow in Eurydice's steps. And we'll come back to, I'll, I'll come back, circle back later about the kind of the logic of making this aria, the showpiece, piece, the, the center piece of the opera.
3: Well, it's, it's literally in the center of the opera, uh, act three of a five act structure. Um, and I have to say it's, it's very different than the music we hear Orfeo sing up to this point in the show. Rosa del Chell feels like an improvisation, He has a little dance song uh, in the same in the first act called "Vi Ricordi," which is uh, you know like it's it's really like a dance tune, uh, and it's strophic. Then he has his lament "Tu sei morta," which is related in its musical construction to "Rosa del Cielo," but is even more austere. Uh, It almost feels like somebody speaking, but just very slowly. It's and it's devastating, but it's also very hard to judge that in a format like this. This is the first time in the opera where he has what I would describe as virtuosic singing, and uh, it represents one of the two styles of singing from this era, the florid song and monody. For me, Monteverdi is all about monody. Monteverdi really is like trying to show how this is the future of music theater, or this is the idea of music theater, and he was such a great uh, exponent of it. But uh, as we know, in as the Baroque goes along, that Florid song ends up winning out, <laughs> and everybody wants to hear coloratura and high notes and that type of stuff. So anyway, um, why don't we listen to John uh, Anthony Rolf Johnson in the first verse of Posente Spirito. Uh-huh. So if you are a singer um, and you are, you know, studying and learning how to sing bel canto and you're learning your Mozart arias and then your Puccini arias and whatnot, then somehow you end up looking at this music. You're like, what the F is this? How the heck am I supposed to sing this? There's so many divisions of the beat. And one of the most difficult things to do on top of that is the re-articulated note um, we call the goat trill, which is related to rearticulating the same note and not everybody can do it. And I might say that Anthony Ralph Johnson might not actually be able (laughs) to do it, but whatever he's doing, you can, you can hear the articulation and he's making it beautiful. It's at least, at least goat adjacent. Yeah. Uh, It's so hard to do this type of music. And there are singers these days who can really, you know, machine gun the rearticulated note and it's very exciting. But is it beautiful? So I stand by my choice of Anthony Ralph Johnson. Um, Matt, before we hear your clip, do you have anything to say?
5: I don't think that was quite as successful as Rosa Del Chow for him. Just because the there was a lot more manipulation, I thought, to create those effects. The, the tone quality kind of went in and out because of that. It got a little throaty at one point, almost, uh, in just kind of that stereotypical English choir tenor sound. Uh, and that's not really something I expect from him as much as I would expect it from... Uh, not to name names, but like Ian Bostridge. <laughs> Shots fired.
3: Uh, before we hear your clip, I, for, I failed to read the libretto verse one. Um, so this is Orpheus addressing uh, Charon. Mighty spirit and formidable, awe-inspiring God, without whom passing to the other shore, a bodiless soul pretends in vain. So we'll hear John Mark Ainsley
5: So what I find to be really remarkable, but remarkable about that recording is how unified his voice sounds. Even though he uses a variety of different tone colors, it the core of his voice remains really consistent and he's able to navigate all those twists and turns and repeated notes and deploy a fabulous goat trail. Uh really fearlessly. It it is um it, it maintains this kind of otherworldly quality that I, it, that I really want to hear from an Orpheus of just that he is the nature of music himself. And he is able to pull out the stops and make it sound not only effortless, but uh, necessary to, to, to bring this music to life.
2: Because sometimes you just got a goat. Is that a good joke? Mm, is really? that a bad joke? I think it's a
1: bad no, joke. Is it even no, a no, no, joke? So... You're
2: just repeating the word goat. Goats are funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. They're <laughs> pound for pound, the funniest barnyard animal. And you can tweet at me if you think that's wrong, but I'm right. So
4: and the most adorable. I will say, not to uh goat troll was deeply impressive.
3: So we have one more round here, and I'm gonna let um Matt Matt's clip go first. Um but I'm gonna read the text. This is still Posente spirito. Um, This is now the third and, I guess, fourth verse uh, before he realizes that Caron is not interested in florid song. (laughs) Um, Here it is. Orpheus I am, following Eurydice's steps through these gloomy sands, never before trod by a mortal man. Ah, serene lights of my eyes, if your glance could restore me to life. Ah, who denies me comfort for my sorrows? So listen for, I haven't heard uh, Matt's clips yet, actually. Listen for the Orpheus I am to be declamatory and, you know, full of agency. And then for the second verse of that, um, to be a bit more um, questioning and, you know, insecure and to sense the idea of, of grief all of a sudden.
2: Matt's clip first.
5: Once again and we will go oh go once ahead. again i just really love how many different tone qualities he uses in these monologues because the poetry can be really opaque and it feels so human when he sings it when he when he varies from stark and bold to sweetness and then to imploring and then at the end it's so painful to listen to to the like the tears that are in his voice already when he's saying, "Who denies comfort to my afflictions?" Uh, I, I just find it to be a really effective take on on the art on and the, the role. Here is
3: uh, Anthony Rolf Johnson. Oh, oh my gosh! I have to say that the switch from the more declamatory statements to the um, more imploring and lamenting ones to me is more clear in Anthony Ralph Johnson. Uh, he just had a different color to access because his voice is so much more head centric than John Mark Ainsley's is. He just was able to really you know add on more head voice, more of that cupo you know sound and um he had a, a moment in the declamatory section where he just really brightened his ah vowel where it just sort of shone out like you know a bright laser what's funny about both of these performances to me is that they're both english and they're both very polite about the rhythmic gestures uh <laughs> in this music there's there's a lot of stuff that you can do with especially like the lombards but which gives a little bit more I don't know um, dyna- dynamicism. Is that a word uh, to to the sentiment? But they both sort of sort of just like undersing some of those more aggressive, rhythmic, rhetorical devices, which is a very British thing to do, by the way.
4: It's very <laughs> gentle, very very gentle. God
2: yeah. save the queen. Uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the things and I know we're about to turn it over to Ashley to make her final choice, but I do want to comment on how hard it is for this opera particularly to um pick a favorite because it's because every time i've heard a performance of lorfeo it's it's always been so individual um there's there's a huge range of takes not just for individual characters but even the orchestration can be varied in how and how certain phrases are expressed ornamentations and, and, you know, that's one of the things I love about this opera. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, Oliver, your selection comes from the first, uh, the, the first early music recording I'd ever heard. The, this 87 recording from uh, John Elliott Gardner. And it really made me fall in love with this kind of music. And I would see, uh, encourage our audience, if you're less familiar with this era of opera, really check it out. Um, and it's just a gorgeous, personal detailed kind of singing that um, that you don't really get from any other era in musical history. There's something really magical about it. It's it's definitely
3: related to the type of solo singing that was done with just lutes or with therbos, like in salons, you know? If you look at some of the music of like Caccini, the Nuove Musique, which, um, yeah, it's hard to put that on stage. And that's one of the reasons why this show is successful in small spaces. I mean, the Court of Mantua, who knows how many it held, 300 people, maybe less, you know, Um, to put this on a giant operatic stage is tough because you have to sacrifice some of the more, you know, um, fast articulations and, uh, you know, delicate singing in favor of projecting and being heard at the back of the theater. So when a place like the commercial Opera does it with, you know, or a Barry Kosky production or something like that. They have to choose a singer who's just who's just louder. There was a nice compromise uh, when Monteverdi, when Elliot Gar- John Elliott Gardner did the Monteverdi tour um, a couple of years ago. He found this tenor named Christian Adam, a Polish tenor, who's a beautiful, like Mozartian grade tenor, with just a very, almost like Anthony Ralph Johnson, just very, like, you know, silky smooth, you know, warm. Uh, youthful sound and he was an incredible actor it just it gutted me it was so beautiful and, uh but yeah not an opera you're, you're going to see at the
2: met <laughs> or ah, at uh, god the, I the, wish York, opera chicago so any cl- any closing Come. arguments before ashley makes her final decision i think matthew wanted to say well, something well
5: there's there's just one when this opera really works and i think that honestly both of these recordings do uh what really comes through in this chunk of the opera in particular of spirito is the inherent logic of this being one of the first stories to be told as an opera. Uh, because if you really look at this moment of the piece, it's about how music has the power to bend nature. Music has the the power to surmount death itself. And it's humanity's flaws at the end that lead to Eurydice. When, when Orpheus turns back and looks at Eurydice, that's what makes her have to stay in the world, realm of the underworld. It's not because of the music itself. And so when you have this music that deploys every tool in the singer's arsenal to try to prove that Orpheus is worthy of being hailed as the greatest musician, that that can be very, very effective as, as theater. Uh, and it's why people keep coming back to this myth time and time again.
2: So without further ado, Ashley, who is your pick to win this round of TKO?
4: Oh my goodness, you guys, this is so tough. First of all, let's start with how beautiful they both were. I mean, my goodness, you're right. These English tenors, they are polite with their Lombards. It is a really beautiful set of storytelling. <laughs> it is a really wonderful era right at the beginning of sort of the re of of Monteverdi's music. Um, so I'm thinking about two things here. The first is, you know, the, the nature of the character of, of Orfeo, Orpheus. You know, he's he was the chief among the poets and the musicians. He, you know, that, that is who he was. So as much as we have art being the thing that is, is bending humanity, you know, he's a true steward of that because he's a poet and musician. Um, And so that's, that's kind of my, my first point. My second point is a little bit more personal. Uh, When I think about the first time that I saw a Monteverdi piece and really Understood what Monteverdi was supposed to be. Uh, it was when I actually got to see a production of um, Return of uh, Sorry, the Return of Ulysses to his homeland. Uh, when Chicago Opera Theater did it a lifetime ago, it was maybe around two thousand seven, eight, somewhere in there. When Jane Glover, who was another like Monteverdi master, was was conducting. And that was God. I would love to go back in time and see that piece again. It was so gorgeous. And the reason that I remember being so moved by it. Was I got to hear uh Nicholas Fans sing Telemaco in that piece. And it was the first time that I really understood that syrupy, effortless tenor that wasn't bombastic. It was gentle, but it was it was so it was gentle and it was genuine all at the same time. And so for me, like that version of a Monteverdi tenor like lives within me. And it's it's my gold standard for for how I feel like this music is, is best sung. And with that, as much as I am so excited and impressed with with Ainsley's goat trill, I think for sheer beauty across the board, I think I'm gonna have to go with Oliver's pick, the Johnson. What do you have to say, I- yourself, Oliver?
3: For right now, we're listening to the Toccata from Orfeo, which is my celebration triumph music. to thank the academy no um i just want to um say that like i loved i love john mark ainsley um i'm a huge fan of john mark ainsley and like i said there are so many versions of this out there and out there baritone to sing it's there's an awesome simon kinley side complete performance you can find on youtube which is all choreographed which is gorgeous you can actually find the christian autumn performance i was talking about If you look really hard, it's from a a French source, but it's on YouTube, and it's the complete show. There are no losers when it comes to Monteverdi, unless you're just singing with too much vibrato. (laughs) The cardinal sin.
0: This just in, the two-minute drill.
2: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week.
5: After getting our hopes up last week, the Clinique Charité's board of directors distanced themselves from the institution's earlier report, which claimed that fully attended concerts could be safe as long as everyone wore a mask. They said the study didn't take into account how COVID victims become infected and was not intended to be a proposal for action. Oops.
4: A new study, which has not yet been peer reviewed, suggests that singing may not be significantly worse for coronavirus spread than talking. According to Dr. Rupert Beale of the Francis Crick Research Institute, quote, the important research suggests that there is no specific excess risk of transmission due to singing. Loud speech and singing both carry excess risk. So maybe we should back off the Wagner for a while.
3: The American Prize in Directing, dubbed the Charles Nelson Riley Prize for 2019-2020, has been awarded to Dean Anthony for his direction of Tom Chapula's opera,
2: Mayo. It's a major award. It's indescribably beautiful. Oh, very timely reference there. Uh, speaking with the Associated Press, Placido Domingo maintains that he didn't abuse his power to get anyone fired in retaliation for allegations of his sexual misconduct. Fact check, the AP notes that investigations at AGMA and L.A. Opera, quote, found the sexual harassment accusations credible, and that one had found a pattern of abuse.
3: Warning, the next story describes sexual aggression. An investigation by Opera de Rennes has been opened to investigate a complaint that soprano Chloe Brio filed, claiming that her onstage colleague took advantage of intimate scenes together. Quote, during the first scene he groped my right breast. I tried to curl up so he couldn't do it again. During the second scene he violently spread my legs by putting his head between them in a motion that insinuated oral sex. At another performance he whispered to my ear, I want to hurt you. Mathieu Rietzler, director of Opera de Rennes, said that he has taken steps to keep the singers apart as much as possible.
5: In a wide-ranging story from ABC News that covers much of the race and COVID-related news reported over the past few months for the very mainstream media, the news team here at Opera Box Score did come to learn that, thanks to ABC, Lincoln Center has turned Janine Tesori and Tazwell Thompson's Blue into an hour-long radio documentary for WQXR. Weston will tweet the link, so follow now at Opera Box Score on Twitter.
2: You know, applications open today for the inaugural Utopia Arts Mentorship Program, whose staged goal is a stated goal is to diversify the arts community for years to come. The one-year mentorship is open to black artists as young as 15 and will pair mentees with leadership with some from some of the world's most prominent opera companies, academic institutions and arts organizations. The application deadline is October 15th. And you can find that at utopiaarts.org.
4: The documentary, The Sound of Identity, debuts today, featuring friend of the the show, Lucia Lucas. The film, which follows Lucas's historic debut as Don Giovanni at Tulsa Opera, is being shown at the Outshine Film Festival and will receive an Atlanta-area screening at the Macon Film Festival. A link to the trailer is on our website.
3: Replacing... The longtime and now retired San Francisco Opera Center leader Sherry Greenwald in January 2021, Carrie Ann Matheson will be the new artistic director, joined by Marcus Beam in the newly created role of SFOC general manager. Maybe San Francisco Opera will change their mind about coming onto the show now.
5: Seattle Opera has announced the creation of the Creation Lab, a new initiative to develop a new generation of composers and librettists. The lab will provide 16 emerging composers and writers with the opportunity to create short operatic pieces to be performed during the 2020-2021 season.
2: Boycott the fake New York City opera! That's the message from the NYCO union, which leafleted the company's Starry Night Classics earlier this month, claiming that, quote, The contract between New York City Opera and its musicians requires that it perform exclusively with members of the New York City Opera Orchestra. Your audience may be hearing singers who have appeared with the New York City Opera, but since the opera's orchestra is not involved in this performance, we believe that calling this organization the New York City Opera is extremely misleading, deceptive, and untrue. Who would dare sully the sterling reputation of NYCO?
4: Dun, dun, dun. Scottish Opera has announced a series of outdoor performances, including a redux of La Boheme in a car park, timing out at just 95 minutes with seven singers and reduced orchestra, plus pop-up concerts of Don Giovanni and the Gondoliers at various public venues, including the Edinburgh Zoo.
3: And on this day, August 24th, In in 1669, it was the birth of composer Alessandro Marcello in Venice. Today marks the first performance of Niccolò Giomelli's opera Antigono in Lucca in 1746. In 1837, it was the birth of French organist and composer Theodore Dubois in Rosne. In 1846, the first performance of Franz von Suppe's operetta Dichter und Bauer in Vienna. In 1949, American composer Stephen Paulus was born in Summit, New Jersey. And on this day in 1968, led by conductor and composer Rafael Kubelik, 34 of the world's leading musicians protested against the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Quote, The occupation of the republic by five states of the Warsaw Pact is a violent contradiction of the humanitarian ideals we have as artists.
2: Read the protest. And that's your two-minute drill. This
0: is Opera Box School with George Cederquist. Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho.
3: in the audience Um, you may not recognize that tune but those of us who studied voice had to say I was gonna say raise your hand if
5: you if you had a teacher assign that to you in your first two years of vocal study.
3: (laughs) Uh the thing that's crazy but that was Marilyn Horne and Martin Katz from a concert in 1979 at La Scala the thing that's crazy about that is that nobody dares these days to sing that type of music with that much histrionics. But man, was it good. I mean, like, I wish that people had the balls to do that. Uh, nowadays, we have a little bit more respect for, you know, historically informed performance. A little bit more. Not everybody, but most of us do. <laughs> and we realize that you can't just change the tempo and you know, add extra notes and, you know, drop out the accompaniment so you could basically sing a cadenza. <laughs> you know, like, it was crazy, but um, it was so good. And if you were growing up, like in the 80s or 90s and looking for some recording to model your interpretation of that aria, uh, sorry, you're not going to be able to imitate her. Just That's just something that's just too unique and too special and too And incredible. you're also not and allowed.
5: Still... <laughs> yeah.
3: And I mean, also I have to say like, Can you imagine an opera house full of people listening to, you know, a singer like Marilyn Horn and a pianist like Martin Katz do a piece like that? Like, when is that ever going to happen again?
5: Even 10 to 15 years later, when Cecilia Bartoli recorded all of the songs that were in that songbook, that was I remember it feeling very bold of her to like make a case for these as songs themselves instead of just as teaching tools.
2: Because this, this recording, of the Marilyn Horn recording, was back in the 70s, right? Nine, yeah. I think.
1: 79. Yeah, I
2: think, I think uh, say again? 79, yeah. 79, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know what's also weird? Is this whole story about New York City opera. Uh, <laughs> or should I say, not New York City opera. That's a wild story to me. Uh, just because...
4: Nico, Yeah. <laughs>
2: It's so, it's so bizarre. I mean, um, it's, it is kind of a, I feel like it's always so strange to be reminded of those things. Could you imagine going into the, uh, the, uh, uh, the lot and get, and seeing those leaflets and like, you know, it's, it's always a, it's always an interesting thing when you attend a performance that is being picketed or, or leafleted. Uh, But it's a, it's a good reminder, I think of how, a lot of you know managements at various companies are not necessarily making the best choice for their uh, uh performers or um or other employees and that's something that we want to keep in mind especially um during the uh the the covid crisis so i th- i think this is a a weird story but kind of in microcosm uh uh just a reminder to you know keep on the lookout and don't get so blinded by the glitz and glamour or the um the draw of any kind of performance to you know just take it at face value
5: it also just like wouldn't be new york city opera in the 21st century if there weren't 14 byzantine twists to the story oh absolutely <laughs> not but <laughs> 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 it, it's never just a straightforward press release with them you have to really dig down into the nitty-gritty to figure out what exactly is going on
4: yeah you gotta so. dive diving.
3: So I wonder if we should just be skipping all the stories that are about, you know, potential singing is not dangerous and, you know, you can go to concerts because we did this study. None of these studies can, you know, really create that much, whatever, incentive for us to go until we know that it's absolutely safe. And we don't want to encourage people to go and to make certain, you know, organizations think that, well, we should because Germany is doing it or because whatever Spain is doing it. We are not those countries and we don't have the same leadership. And even in right those now, countries,
2: so. obviously, uh, every time you hear some good news, uh, someone has to come out from the board of directors and say, that's not actually what the study means. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's <laughs> yes. it's very important to, uh, and I feel like a lot of people, uh, this is something I ran into a lot in my erstwhile career as a journalist, is that um, a lot of people hear about a study and they kind of read the abstract, they put out a story and there's uh, often a level of saying, oh, then what's what what's in this paper is true. Well, not necessarily because it has to be peer reviewed. Uh, people have to check and make sure that all of the methods were sound, that to make sure the sample size is big enough. Sometimes they're testing something that suggests a con- suggests a conclusion that sounds a lot more dramatic than actually what the data is saying. And this is something that we want to watch out for because I think a lot of opera companies, theater companies, and businesses in general are often tempted to hear a good news story from about COVID and, and think, well, it must be okay. Well, that's not actually what it says. There needs to be a rigorous scientific consensus behind these findings. Um, so even though I think we'll probably still keep reporting them as they come up, it's something to, to bear in mind um every time we hear a story that says singing is fine actually uh when it very well might not be
4: I mean yeah we just we don't there's so much we don't know about everything that surrounds COVID-19 and and it's I hate it too like I you know nobody is nobody is delighted by the fact that we're on pause in so many ways most specifically in the very art form that is the reason for this show. But yeah, yeah, we just, we don't know yet. We don't know. But you know what we do know is that opera is going to have some sort of a future because of all of these young mentorship programs that are bringing in new voices, (laughs) sponsoring new creativity and trying to cultivate a community that looks more like the rest of America and serving the cities in which these houses, when we get back to performing, belong. Uh, So I'm really excited to see that we're, uh, we're covering, you know, the fact that all of these really cool, uh, you know, things like the Utopia Arts Fellowship, all of this sort of stuff is awesome.
3: Which is insane. I mean, if you look at who they have lined up to be mentors, they have um, Julia Bullock, uh, Timothy O'Leary from formerly Opera Theater St. Louis, he was the general director there. They have Sarah Williams, our friend from Opera Philadelphia. They have Joshua Winogrey, the you know, the director of arti- artistic programs at LA Opera, they have Francesca Zambello. It's like, can you imagine some 15-year-old kid who's like, oh, I'm going to learn how to sing Quella Fiamma and like applies for this mentorship and like gets Julia Bullock
2: to be uh, their mentor. Absolutely I mean, phenomenal.
4: Yeah, I would hope that these, you know, young folks know who these people are. Some of them don't. And I think that's the
2: point oh, that they'll have no idea. <laughs> yeah,
4: I think that's the point of the mentorship. Um, but yeah, I'm just excited to see that so many of these are happening. And in a way, it It almost—I don't know—if we hadn't been put on pause as a world, if we had, if we would have been able to really dedicate as much time to understanding that this was super important. So I'm, in a way, I'm grateful for the pause so that we can focus on stuff like this. And I'm also super excited about Lucci's documentary. Oh, I can't. Me
2: too. I I watched the the trailer uh, last week when it uh, when it when it dropped, uh, and uh, uh, I'm super excited to see it. I don't know uh, what I'm sure it'll be available in some capacity. Uh, once the uh, uh, the premiere is done, and I'm sure we'll mention it on the show when it happens. But if you don't know, uh, Lucia Lucas is a, a transgender uh, opera singer. We actually had her on the show um, uh, uh, to talk about uh, the documentary a little bit, uh, maybe a year back now. You can search, dig through our archives, and find that show. Um, but it's really terrific. It's really exciting stuff, um, and I'm uh, I'm I'm very excited to see it. We're... We're
5: at the beginning of what hopefully is going to be a new era in terms of representation and opera and whose stories get to be told. Uh, I think that the, all, all three of these new stories are finally a little bit of good news, uh, but uh, we, we all need to do whatever we can to keep the momentum going because the tr- mentorship programs and training programs like that, the more of them that are out there, the more we can combat just the the whiteness and the exclusivity of this art form.
2: I definitely think that uh, you know. It, it, I, I kind of want to end this uh, the two minute drill on a good note, but I do want to uh, to mention briefly the allegations of sexual harassment <laughs> immediately following the heels of Placido Domingo's. Uh, you know, I didn't do anything wrong to her, uh, which I think is just you know so insulting. And I I, I do I am encouraged somewhat. By the fact that I mean, it's 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 horrible that that these that the uh, sexual allegations allegedly happened to her. But I I I was in some way kind of encouraged that it was such a a recent thing because I think for so long before the Me Too mo- movement especially these kinds of things um, there wasn't for victims it was so hard to come out and really uh, make the allegations make those accusations. Um, But this is for uh, this is for performances that happened in 2019 and early 2020 in the before times. Um, And I I think it's a really encouraging sign that there is some level of safety there. That means that she feels comfortable with coming out and describing in rather uh, graphic detail what happened to her. And um, and hopefully that's a a sign, a, a good sign as well, that. This kind of thing just won't be tolerated anymore, and people are no longer afraid into silence because of powerful people like Placido Domingo abusing their power uh, for, you know, uh, for sexual assault reasons. Um, and I think, I think that it could be a positive trend that we're noticing, even though the, both of those stories are very much painful to read.
4: Yeah, I mean, this kind of feels like uh, like phase two of maybe a four to five phase uh, movement. You know, sort of phase one is is the acknowledgement that these things are, in fact, happening at the highest levels of the art form. Phase two is, like you mentioned, the comfort that uh, Chloe has in coming out and saying, hey, this happened, and it wasn't that long ago, and here are the things that you need to know. Um, I would hope that phase three will include things like Matthew Ritzler uh, making sure that he's not just keeping the singer's quote As apart as much as possible, but he's preventing this stuff from even happening because Phase Five, what we want to do, where the abuse doesn't happen,
2: absolutely. Uh, And I think that you know there there are good signs, but it's something that we still have to be vigilant about, um, not just uh, in terms of sexual assault, but also in terms of representation of minorities. Um, And and I think that I hope that within the next uh, few years we'll see some dramatic. Positive changes in that direction. And on that note, let's go to Good Call, Bad Call. Good Call, Bad Call on
0: Opera Box Score.
3: Who's got a good call for me? I just wanted to circle back to Utopia Arts and congratulate Aaron Crouch, who seems to be. The kind of mastermind behind this idea of this fellowship or this mentorship program. So, Aaron Crouch, the same person who sang Sempre Libra A (laughs) a Violeta for the Ages. Yes. So, uh, I'm going to try to get Mr. Crouch on the show so we could talk more about Utopia and maybe he'll sing something in a different font for us.
2: (laughs) Matt. Uh,
5: On Tuesday, August 25th, Ana Maria Martinez, as by the time you're hearing this, sang. Uh, a recital uh, of Spanish songs uh, that is being live streamed from LA Opera's website. Everything I can find looks like it should be available to stream after the fact. Uh, she is one of my really favorite singers singing today. And Spanish, uh, Spanish song repertoire is really underrepresented in terms of the classical canon. So I hope you'll check that out.
2: And Ashley...
4: My good call this week goes to Bard College Conservatory for announcing that they have a new five-year dual degree uh, with a BA. It's a Bachelor of Music and Voice Performance with a BA in another subject in one of the, I believe there are six different colleges at Bard. Um, What makes this so special to me is the level of conservatory training and the folks that you get to do it with. Can you imagine studying voice with Stephanie Blythe while also pursuing a double major with biochem? Or here's a thought, economics and finance? Amazing. Do and
5: it. I hear that Dawn Upshaw is the one teaching biochem. She's really, she can do everything.
4: <laughs> I would absolutely learn biochem from Dawn Upshaw. You betcha.
2: She's so talented. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at normwoodell.com. That's dot lcom Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool, actually. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Ashley Hardgrave and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about Opera, whether Zoom is working or not. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, September 2nd. Oh, God, it's September already. Featuring an interview with Danny Belcher, plus more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more retractions from premature COVID studies. Join us then.